The other thing that we're told or we're shown in this verse is that the verse does not say in the beginning, the gods. It says in the beginning, God. There's nobody else around. In the beginning, God. He's there and there's nobody else around. So this God is only one God. There's no other gods around here creating. There's only him. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for December 31st, 2017. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of God. Ephesians 4 says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Timothy chapter 1, The King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever. Amen. Amen. So, there's only one God, there's none other. There's dozens of passages that I could quote, emphasizing the fact that there's only one God. So the God of the Bible is only one. We worship one God and only one. Today, Brother Omar breaks down the first few words of the book of Genesis. He tells us how important it is to understand what these first few words are in order to get the understanding of who God says he is. Brother Omar also explains why the Trinity is so important and how it ties into who God actually is. Now, he'll be reading from the book of Genesis. So grab your Bibles and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way. We're moving on from the doctrines of the scriptures where we started, and we're moving on to the doctrine of God. That is the second part of our statement of faith is the doctrine of God. Now, if you read our statement of faith, it says this, the Holy Scriptures reveal God as creator, and sustainer of the universe, existing in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, with all three persons sharing the exact same divine nature. This Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is of one substance, power, wisdom, and goodness, and exists in unity as one God alone. That's a mouthful. But for the next two or three sermons, I will try to break that down. And basically, this is our understanding as a church of who God is. Right? We believe, when we, you know, when we cover the doctrine of the scriptures, that God revealed himself to us through his word. Right? He, he has made himself known to mankind through his word. So what we're going to do is that we're going to see who God has revealed himself to be. Like, who is this God that we say that we worship? Right? We say we worship God. Who is he? How has he revealed himself to us in his word? Now, the doctrine of God is a very, very, very complicated doctrine. We're going to talk about things like the Trinity. We're going to talk about things like the deity of Christ. And because of that, there's a lot of lofty stuff or concepts that are thrown around because we're talking about God. We're talking about a being that we will never fully comprehend as human beings. He is too big, he is too deep, he is too profound for us and our little minds to ever completely understand, right? Even in eternity, we won't be able, because we're going to still be finite, we're not going to be omniscient, only God is omniscient. So we will never really truly comprehend all that there is to God, but nevertheless, we have in Scripture a revelation of who he is. And as a church, it is our obligation to learn as much as we can about who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. Now, and like I said, I mean, there's going to be a lot of times there's going to be a lot of lofty language, a lot of lofty concepts, etc. I will try to simplify as much as I can, 
but there may be occasions that it's not possible. And I refuse to skip or to dumb things down, right? But I would rather people maybe not understand a concept, but know about it and look it up rather to just ignore it altogether. But we're talking about who God is and who has God revealed himself to be. In order to do that, I want to start at the beginning, which is Genesis 1.1. We get the introduction. This is the first verse in the book that God authored, right? And he has chosen to reveal himself in. This is the first verse. This is the first thing that we hear or we read about God. So Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a very interesting way to start a very long book. In the beginning, God. We get a couple of things out of this. In the beginning, God means that God was there in the beginning. So before anything began, God was there already. So we're told in this verse already that God has been there since anything that there is, he was there. So he is a God who is there. First thing we know about God, that he's there. The second thing is that he is a creator. He created the heavens and the earth. So before time, he was there and he created. He's a creator. The other thing that we're told or we're shown in this verse is that the verse does not say in the beginning, the gods. It says, in the beginning, God. There's nobody else around, right? In the beginning, God. We're just, it's, he's there, and there's nobody else around, so this God is only one God. There's no other gods around here creating. There's only him. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, real quick, we're told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. You can't get more specific than that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So God is one, the Bible says, and in the beginning, he's there all by himself. There's nobody else. Second Samuel chapter 7 says this, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our Ears. So the Bible emphasizes the fact that God is one, that there is no other God, there's only one God, and we see that from the beginning. Nehemiah chapter, I'm just going to read this. Nehemiah chapter 9, you are the Lord, you alone. <coughs> you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are Lord, you alone. Ephesians 4 says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Timothy chapter 1, The King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen and amen. So, there's only one God, there's none other. There's dozens of passages that I could quote, emphasizing the fact that there's only one God. So the God of the Bible is only one. We worship one God. God and only one. Now, the only option that we have as human beings is that we're going to worship the God or we're going to worship the creature. God is the creator. 
He was there before anything was created. So anything that has been created was created by him. So if we're not worshiping the creator, we have no other option. We're going to worship some sort of creature because there's nothing else other than the creator, the true creator. So any other god that there is or any other idol that man makes is or has to be a reflection of the creature because there's only one God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul breaks this down. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul says the wrath of God, that is his justice, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Man, in his sin, suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. What Paul's saying is this. Man, the heathen, men who live in jungles, men who live somewhere in an island, the heathen that live in New York, it doesn't matter where they're at, men know God, whether they like it or not. Now, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness because Paul says the attributes of God can be seen in his creation. When man looks around and he sees the world, when you see nature, when you see the things that have been made, those things show who God is. We know that God is a creator. We know that God likes beauty. He made flowers. He made colors. He made it. All these things are a reflection of who God is. If you go to my van, and even if I'm not there, and you open up my van, my work van, you look around, you say, this guy is very messy. You don't have to know me. You can see the work, right? <laughs> And you can look inside of my van and say, this guy is a pig. You don't have to know me. You can just look, right? So by seeing God's work, we can tell who he is. So for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, man, are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. What is he saying? He's saying simply this. Man knew God knows the things about God, but in their sin, they exchange it and they worship the creature, creeping things, animals, mortal man, reflections of mortal man. In Psalms 115, verse 2 says this, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, 
and so do all who trust them. The idols that man has made, it says here that those who make them become like them. Other translations say, like them are those who make them. The Reina Valera says, semejante a ellos son los que los hacen. That word semejante is the same word that is used in the Spanish Bible to describe how we're created. Like when we were made, we were made what? A su imagen y semejanza, the same word. So what, what this verse is saying that the idols that man makes, he makes them in his likeness. They're a reflection of man. Man in worshiping idols or any other god other than the God of the Bible is worshiping himself because the idols are nothing other than a reflection of man. Any other god, with the exception of the God of the Bible, is a reflection of man. It's man's attempt to worship himself. Like them are those who make them. Those who make the idols are making them like, like themselves. I mean, if you look at the old Greek gods, they were drunkards. I mean, the Greek gods were basically the Greeks, the Greek people. They were a reflection of who they were. And we see that even with the other religions. For example, Islam and Buddhism and all these religions, notice they have like a cultural thing attached to them, right? If you're going to become a Buddhist, you have to involve yourself in Eastern culture and, and, or Arab culture. You could be a Christian in Honduras, and you can be a Christian in England, and you still be Honduran, and you still be English. <laughs> because God is simply, the gospel is a universal, eternal truth. Amen. And what it, all it does is redeems the good things about the culture, but it's, it's a universal truth. Because it comes from God. God was here before anything that was made was made. So God is one. We have one God. And all the other idols and all the other gods are nothing more than a reflection of the creature. So, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 1.1, this is the introduction to the book of God. Chapter 1, verse 1. God says, in the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. If you read through Genesis, the account in Genesis tells us that God created everything that is made in a period of seven days. Now, Good Christian brothers argue as to whether or not these were literal 24-hour days or a more symbolical time. I'm not going to get into that now. I find it interesting how both make compelling cases, but both people who believe think that the other side is dumb. It's hilarious. It's just... But anyways, so God made the, the creation account is uh, over a seven-day period. The last day, God rested, right? Interestingly, the account doesn't give us an end to the day, right? You got the first day ends, the second day, what is it, the beginning and the end, it was the first day, but then we get to the seventh day, it just says that God rested. We're not given an end to that day. Maybe that has something to do with the world. Now we should interpret the days literally or not. I don't know. I'm going to leave it like that. But so we get this idea that God is creating heavens and the earth, and we get to the sixth day, God creates man, right? So, one God creates man. So here's what Genesis 1.26 says, okay? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our 
likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over the earth, and so forth. So, God is one. I just read to you a bunch of verses that emphasize that God is one. But we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it tells us that God says, let us make man in our image. And what's even interesting, and in the following verse, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is like a repetition of what he just said. He just changed it to the singular after he said it in plural. So the question is, who is God talking to here? Let us make man in our, in our image. Now, the funny thing about this is that there's no way around this verse. The rabbis had no idea what to do with this verse. So they came up, and even some of the people who denied the Trinity came up with a series of explanations as to why this could mean that God says, let us. Because it's clear in the Hebrew, God is, is using a plural. God is saying, let us make man in our image. So... Here's what some of the rabbis say this could mean. Some of them, there's three explanations that I looked up. Some of them say that God is speaking with the angels, right? God says to the angels, apparently he created the angels before us in this whole story. He says to the angels, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, the rabbis believe that this is a way that God is teaching us a lesson that a person of power should not take his subordinates for granted and should include them in their decisions. I mean, the fact that God just apparently stopped in the middle of telling the story how he's creating the world to teach us a lesson, putting that aside. The problem with this idea is that we're not created in the image of the angels. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are created in the image of the angels. Nor the Bible even say that the angels were necessarily created in the image of God. So the idea here makes no sense when you take into account the fact that the person, the our, the us, who is creating man, is the one doing the creating. So we're also not told in the Bible that the angels assisted God somehow in creating man. Because the account simply says God took dirt from the ground, and he breathed the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. It doesn't say, and the angels came and gathered the dust or anything like that. It just simply says, God is the one who made us. So obviously, the God is speaking with the angels theory does not have biblical support. The other explanation that people have, this one is popular among some Islamic groups, um, it's called the royal plural or the majestic plural. Basically, what this means is that in the old days, sometimes kings or queens would use a first-person plural to refer to themselves. For example, they will say, uh, what shall we do about this matter? Even though it is the king speaking, he's using plural to kind of uh, emphasize his majesty and his power. Or they'll say, come, you know, come into our chamber or whatever. The problem with that view is that's great if you speak English. 
Um, ancient Hebrew peoples did not speak like that, that we know of. In fact, the idea of this so-called royal plural or the royal we, whatever it is, comes from Anglo-Saxon kings. The Anglo-Saxon kings believed or wanted to, people to believe that they were somehow aligned with God. They call that the, the, the doctrine of divine right. The king has a divine right you know, the, the right that God gives them to rule over you. They will say something like that. What shall we do about this matter? In order to kind of say we, meaning me, the king, and God, you need to obey what me, you know, and God say. Okay? That's where that idea comes from. Sounds good, but it's not in the Bible. We're reading into the Bible something that comes from an Anglo-Saxon culture taking it back to 2,000 years and reading it into a text of people that didn't even speak English or thought that way. And this idea came about around the 1300s because some of the rabbis were looking for ways to explain this verse. And when they're looking around and they see the Anglo-Saxon kings, they're like, oh yeah, see, that's what God was doing. Okay, so again, no support in scripture. The other one, this is my favorite one, quote-unquote, is that God is speaking to the earth, okay? Now, man, in this view, this comes from the Middle Ages, man is created from the ground, from the dust, from the earth, right? So God then breathes the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. So you have man is made out of physical stuff, which is the earth, and spiritual stuff, which comes from God. So man is a combination of earth and God breathing onto him. So what this says is when God decided to make man, he goes to the earth and says, Earth, let us make man in our image, in our, image, in our likeness. Because man is a combination of the earth and the spiritual aspect that comes from God. Well, the problem with that is, that nowhere in Scripture we're told that the earth is a sentient being. The earth is just earth. The earth is not a being. It doesn't, you know, doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have thoughts. It doesn't think. We're not told in the Bible that not only we're made in the image of the earth, right, but that the earth is not a, a being that we have our likeness to. Also, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Behold, this is after Adam falls. He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So man, God says, has become like one of us, plural again, knowing good and evil. The earth does not know good and evil because the earth doesn't think. So we're not made in the image of the earth. That makes no sense whatsoever. So, also, God does not need to speak to something that he created somehow to assist him to create man. So that also makes no sense. So, when man fell, he gained knowledge of good and evil, and he became like God in that sense, that he knows good and evil, which the earth, from what we understand, doesn't. So, there's, there's more uh, explanations, quote-unquote, of this verse. They get funnier as you advance because they're grasping at straws. You cannot work your way around this verse. Who is God speaking to here? Who is God 
referring to here when he says, let us make man. So let's look at what the Bible has to say. Hebrews chapter one, verse 10 says this. Now, Hebrews chapter one is if you read the book of Hebrews, it's talking about Jesus, right? The writer of Hebrews decides to prove to everybody that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is greater than Moses. So when you get to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, he says, he says this, And you, speaking of Jesus, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So this is talking about Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, You, Lord, Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus was there in the beginning, laying the foundation of the earth. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is God, but the Word was with God in the beginning. So God is the Word, but the Word was with God in the beginning. So you go back to the beginning, and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God... Okay, so we have another spirit, there's another person here, right? We got the Word who is God, who was with God, we have the Spirit of God, and we have God. It's all in the beginning. And the Spirit was hovering over the face of the water, and then what happens? God spoke, and He said, let there be light. And there was light. So in the beginning, God, the Spirit, His Word, He speaks, and there is light. So we have three persons here. Now the emphasis goes back to there's only one God. There's only one God. Behold Israel, the Lord your God is one God. There is no other God. There's only one God. But this one God that we worship... It's more than one person. And it seems to be there's three of persons to this God. So this God is not just one person. He's a community of three persons. And he was there in the beginning. So the God that we worship, the God that we worship, exists in three persons. Now, several people have claimed that this makes no sense, right? That this is not logical. How can God, you know, you worship three gods, we'll say, right? We don't worship three gods. The Bible, anybody who takes an honest look at the Bible will say that the Bible is clear. There's only one God, one God, one God. So we don't worship three gods. We worship one God. But the Bible is, makes it also very clear that this God exists in a plurality of persons. Because Genesis 1.26 is inescapable. You cannot explain Genesis 1.26 in any other way. Let us make man in our image. Who is he talking to? Who is God talking to? 
He's talking to himself within the Trinity. He's talking to himself within his persons. Some people call it the divine consultation. God says, let us make man in our image. So we are made in the image of God who is a trinity of persons. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, it's important, number one, is that this is the God that we worship. It's an inescapable fact that this is the God of the Bible. Any deviation from this God puts you outside of the Christian faith. So if you, if you worship some God that is not like this, you're placed outside of the Christian faith. Now, by that I mean, I don't mean that if you're a Christian and you may not understand the Trinity and all its intricacies or whatever, that you're out, that you lost your salvation and you're not saved, you're not going to go to heaven. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is purposeful denial of the doctrine of the Trinity, knowing purpose denial of the doctrine of the Trinity, would put you outside of the Christian faith. So, on the curse of this, these series of sermons, I will cover some of the other views on God that they're out there. Some of them are historical, some of them are still around. But the reason why this is important is because for God to be whom he says he is, it makes sense that he's a Trinity. For example, we believe that God is love. Right? The Bible teaches it. We believe that God is love. The problem is that love needs an object. So you, you can't love yourself. That's called selfishness, which is sin. Love requires another being or entity to be there. So if we believed, or if God were one person, one God, one person, then before anything was created, who was he loving? He cannot be love, because love requires another person. Love requires an object. So that would mean that when God created man, he created man to love him, so God became love when he created man. Also, did God learn to love when he created man? You see? Makes no sense. But if God is a plurality of persons, if there's more than one person in this Godhead, then you have a situation that for all eternity, before anything that was made, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. You have a relationship in this community that is eternal. This is how God has always lived, so to speak. Because this is who his being is, right? What is love? It's benevolence. I put this person before myself and the interest of this person before myself. The father loves the son in that way. The father puts the son first. The son puts the father first. They put the spirit. That's how they live. That's how God has always been. That's why God is love. When God creates, all he's doing is expressing what he already has. He's expressing what he already is. Makes no sense any other way. That's why God is revealed this way to us. Makes perfect sense. His justice, his love, and his mercy makes no sense if he's only one person and one God. Makes no sense whatsoever. So God, to be who he says he is in the Bible, for God to create what he created in the Bible, 
he would have to be a multiplicity or a plurality of persons. Now, the emphasis is we still worship one God. We don't worship two or three gods. We worship one God. It's a mystery. It's incomprehensible, but it's reasonable. It makes sense. For God to be who he says he is, it makes sense for him to be a trinity. Now, like I said, the doctrine of the trinity is the most difficult doctrine to explain in the Bible and to comprehend in the Bible. And many men have wrote thousands of pages on this. But this is the doctrine that separates us from everybody else. Everybody, people say, well, wait, there's three main monotheistic religions. We're the only ones who worship a God who is a trinity. Nobody else. Does. The Jews don't. They deny this teaching as heresy and as blasphemy and as idolatry because you worship three gods, which we don't. The Muslims say the same thing. We worship three gods, which we don't. And I guess the Hindus are all right because they worship millions of gods, <laughs> which we don't. Okay? We don't. We worship one God who exists in three persons. All right? We worship one God. There's only one that exists in three persons. And the way that he has revealed himself to us makes sense of who he is. Also, the Father loved us, so he sent his Son to die for us. His Son sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to fill us to live a sanctified life. So your salvation is the work of a triune God. And each person of that trinity is involved in your salvation. The Father loved you, so he sent his only begotten Son to this earth to be born as a man, as a little baby. You see a baby eaten, you have to like change your diaper. That was Jesus. There was a time in the, the life of the second person of the Trinity that he was this little indefensible child that had to be changed and fed. That, that child made and laid the foundations of the whole world. A child. It's interesting because the Bible says that he was conceived of the Spirit. That means that a conception, when it happens, you need to take what? So you have, uh, tw what is it, 23 chromosomes from one, and, 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 yeah, 46. So what makes this amazing to me is that if what the Bible says is true, which it is, Jesus maybe had Mary's nose, maybe he has her eyes, because half of Jesus was Mary. Maybe he had Mary's eyebrows. He took up human flesh. That's how human he became. He became so human, he had characteristics of his mother. He must have had. Maybe he had his, her hair or something. We don't know. But that's how human the second person of the Trinity became. And he came here protected by the Father until he died. He bled for us, ascended unto heaven. Then he sends down his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to convict the world of sin of righteousness, and to those who believe, comes and, he comes and lives inside of them and helps them live the Christian life. That's the work of a triune God. You can't have that if there's only one person. You can't have that if this is Allah or something. You can't, you can't have that. Only the God of the Bible, the triune God, can make this amazing thing happen. That's why we worship a God who is a trinity. 
And this is why when you step out of this, you are stepping outside of the Christian faith. You can call yourself a Christian. Your church can have the name Jehovah in it. But you're not a Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses are lying to you. They're not witnesses of Jehovah. Because Jehovah, in the Bible, is a triunity, right? It's three, God, it's three persons. They deny that right off the back. That's the first thing that they call that a heresy. They call that a blasphemy. They call that an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. How can you believe that? The Catholic Church believes that. Okay, good for the Catholic Church. That's what the Bible teaches. So it's important for us to be able to learn this doctrine and to be able to defend it because this is the most important doctrine of the Bible because this is who God is. Everything else comes from that. Our salvation, our justification, our protection. Everything comes from the fact that God is who he says he is in the Bible. And we have to understand it and be able to explain it and be able to comprehend that this God is amazingly great and big and far beyond our comprehension as far as how can he be this way, right? How can he be three and, and still be one? We don't know. I'll probably never know. I'll probably be in heaven for all eternity trying to find out. But it's who he says he is. And um, like I said, once you step away from this, you're stepping outside of the Christian faith. So as a church, we believe in this doctrine. We're firm in this doctrine. And we're standing on it because we're standing on the rock of this teaching. I want to leave it at that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you came down to us to save us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have offered us salvation, Lord, but you still remain with us, Lord, through all our lives, Lord, protecting us, guiding us, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord. We pray that you may open our minds to understand you, Lord, better. We pray that you may help us understand, Lord. We pray that you may give us the mind of Christ, that we may know all the things that we can possibly know about you and who you are, Lord, and what you've done for us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this doctrine, this teaching, Lord, that we're starting to learn now, Lord, that you may help us understand it, that you may help us grasp it, Lord, and that you may help us going forward to teach it, to defend it, Lord, and to stand firm in who you say you are, Lord, because we believe your word above anybody else's word, Lord. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.